This morning, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 13. I'm not reading it yet. Acts 2, 1 through 13. Uh, and in this, there's a lot of sermons that I, I'm going to try to pull a lot of application out of. There's a lot of sermons where I think it's... Um, it's really easy to look at this and say and run with it of this is what we should or should not do. This is how we should act. This is how we should avoid acting. This is how we should trust. This is how we should lean into Jesus. And in this um, sermon this morning, certainly there's going to be some application that comes out of it. But my whole goal in this is to really for us to understand what happened here. Because the reality is, is there is denominations and believers that separate over this entire chapter. There's churches that are established primarily on the truths that we find in verses 1 through 13 and what it meant to the early church and how it should transpond to our lives today. And so when I preach the sermon, I just want to be upfront and real is that this is going to be more informative and hopefully a little shorter than usual. And the reason behind that is simply because we should understand what the Spirit does in this moment. And we should understand how that not only applies to our life in some very basic ways, but understand that this, much like a lot of Acts, is more descriptive rather than prescriptive. What I mean by that, it is describing how the Spirit fell upon the early church, the, the first of the Christians in Jerusalem, rather than looking at this as if this is something that's going to magically happen in the same way to everybody that surrenders to Jesus. And I want to be very clear. We all who trust in Jesus have the spirit that dwells in us, but it does not look like this every time. And that is important because what we're going to see in this is a lot of ideas of speaking in tongues and, and all of these things, right? But that is not something that may that you may never, that may be something that you may never experience. One commentator on the book of Acts. I want to read this. This is word for word what he wrote. He says this about the, this part of the book of Acts. He says, Without the coming of the Spirit, there would be no prophecy, no preaching, no mission, no conversions, no worldwide Christian movement. Luke then encourages us to examine this material very carefully. The reality here is uh, chapter 1 is an amazing thing. But nothing would have came about from chapter 3 through chapter 28. And nothing would have come about in our lives if it would not have been for the Spirit of God falling upon His people and leading them. And so as we look at this, let's look at it carefully and let's understand. And so we're going to read it all together, starting in verse 1. Good job. It says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, I'm going to pause. I'm going to go ahead and warn you. We're going to get to some locations. I will not pronunciate those there correctly. I'm going to try my best, and I have practiced it, but it will not be spot on. But we're going to go through it, okay? Let's start over. Verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and having to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered. That's an interesting word. 
because each one of his hearing, they must speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of them, each of us, in his own native language? Pythorians and Medicis and Elamites as, and residents of Mesotopia, Mesotopia Judea, Caperna, Pachis, Asia, Phagria, Paphilia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Crina, and visits from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and barbarians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty words of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked, and they were filled, saying they were filled with a new wine. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we even ask for your grace when I um, pronunciate words incorrectly. God, we thank you for the word. We thank you for this moment in your history of salvation of your people. God, we pray that we would understand this in a way that would not only uh, cause us to have a better understanding of who you are and how you work and what you have done previously, but Father, also understand that because of this, you do empower us. Maybe not like a falling, rushing wind and a fires from heaven And maybe not even in the same way that is pictured here where we begin to speak in tongues of different languages. But Father, you you fill us with your spirit. So therefore, we can be led and guided by your truth. So Father, be with me as I preach your word and be with those who are listening so that we can apply it in a way that would be beneficial not only to us, but God in uh, that's consistent with who you are calling us to be. In your son's holy name. Amen. All right, so I'm, I'm not got, I don't have points, and I don't have any of those amazing things. Uh, we're just going to really see this in two parts, though, just so it to make sense a little bit, a little bit. Um, it's really just this idea um, in verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to look at verses 5 through 13. We're going to look at it in two parts, and it's really just a natural break in the story here. And so <clears throat> starting in verse 1, it says this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, when the day when the day of Pentecost arrived, <clears throat> what does that mean? See, often we look at this, and um, I would argue that we refer to the day of Pentecost as only as this one encounter, but the day of Pentecost was something that the Jews practiced regularly, if not yearly. See, in This is a Jewish festival known in Greek as Pentecost because he's writing in Greek. But in the same uh, Hebrew text, it would be known as the Feast of Weeks. Um, We actually looked through this multiple times over the last several months when we're reading through uh, the Bible together. We saw this in multiple accounts. But one specific one is in Leviticus 23, 15 through 21. I'm going to look at it. It's Leviticus 23, 15 through 21, and it says this, You should count seven full weeks from the day after Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days of the day after the seventh Sabbath, when you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephith. 
They shall be fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven and first fruits to the Lord. You shall present them with bread, seven lambs a year old, without blemish, and one bull from the herd of the rams. They shall be burnt offerings to the Lord, and their grain offerings they shall drink offering, a food offering with pleasing aroma to the Lord. You shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offering. And the priest shall wave them with the bread and the first fruits and wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall have a holy conviction, uh, convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statue forever in all the dwelling places throughout your generation. I want to focus on 21 because there's a lot going on there of male goats and male lambs and bread and the, the vine and all those things. <coughs> but in verse 21, this is why they're practicing it now. Verse 21, it says, And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statue forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generation. The reason why the people that we're going to talk about in just a moment were in Jerusalem is most likely because they stayed from the Passover until now to practice this Feast of the Weeks or in Greek as it is Pentecost. So they're gathered in Jerusalem for the purpose of their Jewish festival. See, this is a um, celebrated with sacrifice and feasting. 50, hour, 50 days after the first fruits of the grain harvest had been offered. It was one of the three great uh, agricultural festivals held annually to acknowledge God's goodness in a cycle of seasons and the fruitfulness of the earth. They were doing this festival historically so that they would understand the goodness of God. This speaks to the coming of the Spirit in this moment so greatly. Why does the Spirit fall on the day of Pentecost, the, the, the week of the fest, the feast of the weeks? Because the Jews would have known what this meant. This was a moment where they were celebrating the faithfulness and the goodness and the fruitfulness of the earth. Why? Because God is the one that provided it for them. So they're gathered together, all of these individuals in Jerusalem. We're going to get there in one moment of who all is there and all of those things. But continuing in verse 1, it says they were all together in one place. Who is all that are together in one place? I don't think it's talking about everyone that's going to come. Because you're going to see in just a moment, they're coming to see what's going on. The all together in one place is most likely the individuals that we looked at last week. Where you look at in verse 15, it says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120. Most likely, the, the, the all who were gathered in one place is not just the 12 disciples that are now being established, but all of the individuals, the 120. Um, the, arguably, it could just be the 12. Who, who, we don't really know, but it would, when he says the all who were gathered together, the last time they talked about people being gathered together, it was 120. Luke is telling this story. So most likely, still that 120 gathered together in one place. But why? Why are they gathered in one place? I think two things we should really understand about this in connection to chapter 1. 
they're gathered, I would argue, in the same manner mentioned in verse 14, where it says, All these were one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together, the women and the Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. These individuals are gathered together, all of them, if it's the 120 or if it's just the smaller group than that, they're gathered together. Why and how? Praying and seeking God. We know this to be the case because not only was it the case prior to, but it's the case thereafter when we get to the end of chapter 2. They're gathered together praying, seeking God. But why in Jerusalem? Why are they in Jerusalem? We'll look back at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, speaking of Jesus here, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So these individuals are gathered together in one place, most likely, I would argue, praying and devoting themselves to prayer together, waiting eagerly for the coming of the Spirit of God. And that's when you get to verse 2. Where it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty, a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested each on them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. You see two things going here on here. You see in, um, in these two things, you see the mighty rushing wind, like a mighty rushing, rushing wind, and the tongues of fire. The same guy that I referenced to earlier that explained this portion in the book of Acts says this about this moment. He says this. In these first few verses in Acts 2, Luke uses the principles of analogies. As he Marshall points out, another theologian, the sound from heaven in verse 2 was like a violent wind, but was not one. The tongues were like fire, but not fire. In verse 3, Luke reserved his description. He says there seemed to be tongues like fire that came to rest on each believer. In any case, the sound of this event is said to fill an echo throughout the whole house where the disciples were sitting together. What, is, what I want us to see in, in this explanation is very simply that Luke here is not talking very Figuratively, He's talking figuratively. He's not talking actually. There wasn't a tornado that came in the midst of this house. There wasn't lips of fire coming down. He's talking is in analogies. What are those analogies though? Why wind and why fire? What, what is the significance this of these two things when talking about the coming of the Spirit of God? Let's start with a rushing wind. See, in Scripture... Wind, or penosis, which is the Greek, is an emblem of the spirit or creative breath of phenom of God. Like Ezekiel 37, 9-10. Ezekiel 37, 9-10. This is a very common scripture uh, in the Old Testament. It's the moment in which God calls Ezekiel to prophesy to a valley of dry bones. To a, a valley where there's these bones that are fallen or, or, or dry, meaning that they're not only dead, but they have been dead for a very long time. 
And in Ezekiel 37, 9 and 10, it says this. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breathe, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. That in the end of this moment, in the end of this encounter, where God is calling Ezekiel to prophesy, and to prophesy breath into them, after they have grown everything else back to life, all the tendons and skin and all of that has already come back, he's prophesying to them, he says, prophesy breath in them. And what does it say? The four winds come from the four winds. See this rushing wind coming in. It's the breath of God on the life of the disciples. That certainly though they have already trusted in Christ, this is the moment in which God is now dwelling with them. That the spirit of God is falling on them and giving them new life through the spirit of God. That God is now present with this group of people in this room. So why rushing wind? It's because this represents this creation of breath from God. But why tongues of fire? Because this one, if we're going to be honest, is weird, right? Um, I don't know how you got your guys' minds work, um, but I'm a very... I visualize things as I read them or say them. Um, I can close my eyes and uh, if I've been in your home, I can lay out the entire home, right? That's just, I'm a very visual person. Um, and so when I read tongues of fire or lips of fire, what I imagine is a bunch of lips. And for some reason, they're women's lips that are like, got like lipstick on them. You know what I'm talking about? And they're on fire. I don't know why. That's just who I am. But why this? Because this is a weird statement altogether. It's because fire is another, another symbol of God's presence in Scripture, we can look at a lot of moments like this. Uh, some very brief one is, how does God appear to Moses the very first time? Through a bush that is what? On fire, not consumed. But Isaiah 66, 15 through 16 says this, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger and fury and rebuke thee with flames of fire, for by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and then by the sword he will all, with all flesh and all slain by the Lord shall be many. Now this is a very specific moment God is represented in fire. That's slightly different than this one, but it's still a representation of God in fire. How does God make a covenant with Abraham? Abraham falls asleep in the middle of the night. God is, all of the animals are prepped. Imagine a bunch of dead animals here, dead animals there. They would walk through the aisle together, representing that I am going to obey this covenant. God puts Abraham to sleep, essentially, and he passes through in that of a pot and that of a torch, a fire. God's presence is represented in fire multiple times throughout Scripture. There's a ministry called Legionnaire Ministry. It's a Presbyterian ministry. Their logo is exactly that for a reason. It's a torch on fire. And why? Because it represents the presence of God. So he comes, the Spirit comes as a rushing wind and tongues of fire. Why? Because it's the 
the breath of God and the presence of God represented to them. Imagine the task that Luke had. Because remember, Luke's not one that's experienced this moment. Luke is an historian asking these people what it was like. So he goes up to these individuals and he asks them, Hey, you know that day that you guys were meeting in the upper room when the Spirit came? What was that like for you? And they start explaining it, and he's just writing it like he knows how to write it. But he wrote it in such a way that clearly defines to us God's presence and God's power fell on them. What is the outcome of that? So speaking in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In verse 4. Speaking in tongues is where a lot of the disagreement comes. Um, I think here it is very clear what Luke is saying happened that day. You get into other scriptures, for example, like 1 Corinthians 12, and Paul gives the order of church. Then it becomes a little less clear. But here I think it is abundantly clear. But I want to provide to you the two disagreements um, here, the two angles in which people will approach it. Um, the one, or maybe even three, uh, the first one is that they're speaking some kind of angelic language. They're, they're speaking in a language that we don't understand or know, and that God miraculously worked in the, the lives of the other individuals so that they could understand and hear what these individuals were proclaiming. I think it might be possible that this God certainly could have worked that way, but I don't think that's what this text is telling us. I think this text is simply saying that he caused it to where these individuals were able to speak in other languages, though they did not know the other languages prior to speaking them. I think that is clear when you look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, And when they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave utterance. And then when you skip down and you look at the response in verse 7 of the people, it says, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own languages? That God calls a miraculous moment in the life of the recipients of the Holy Spirit to be able to speak in such a way that the people that were present <coughs> during the Pentecost was able to hear the Word of God in their own language. Even if I'm wrong, or even if, if I'm right, it doesn't take away the miraculous work of God in this moment. The reality, though, is that God does an amazing thing. He calls us these Galileans, most of them fishermen, some of them tax collectors, to be able to speak in languages that they did not know so that the word of God would be proclaimed to the people that God wanted to hear it. And this is just one small way that we see the Spirit of God working in the life of the early disciples in the early church. But this is a miraculous first way. Then he goes on, he says, and the Spirit gave them utterance. We don't need to miss this. Yes, it was miraculous. Yes, it was amazing. But it was only because the Spirit of God empowered them to do it. 
It was only because the Spirit of God allowed them the ability to do so. Just like God loosened the tongue of the donkey that spoke to Nahum. The false prophet, the, the, the other prophet. Just as God loosened the tongue of the donkey to be able to speak to the prophet of the pagan God. God was able to loosen the tongues of men and allow them to speak in other tongues so that other people could hear the good news of the, God, of the word of God so that they could believe and trust in Jesus for who he was. But I want us to be clear here. We do see the continuation of God using the disciples in very specific ways. We see Peter healing the lame man. We see amazing things. We see that Paul goes through hell and back through his life being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. The Spirit of God certainly driving him forward each of those moments. But we don't necessarily see moments like this all throughout the Scripture. Why? Because God doesn't work that way necessarily. God certainly empowers His people to accomplish His will at the time. But it's not as if these people became superheroes that could understand and speak any language at the drop of a dime. It was by the utterance of the Spirit of God. And I would say that there's one very practical way that we continue to see this today. Certainly there's moments where God miraculously works in the life of people, where he gives them the power to do things that they would not be able to do otherwise. But I would argue that when you go to a church service, or if you go to a mission trip in foreign nation, or even in the domestic here, and you begin to speak to someone the gospel and you have a man or a woman beside you that is able to translate that to their language. It is still the work of God. It's certainly one where they poured their life into being able to speak said language, but it is a work of God. And God uses that. It's a wonderful experience if you've never done it. Very hard experience. But the reality is God's still working in that just as he was in this moment. So as we look at this, before we go on, I just want us to very simply see that the Spirit of God has fallen on the people of God. The Spirit is now within them, with them, present with them, empowering them in a very specific way here. <coughs> and as we go into the second section, what we're going to see is the response of the people present, as well as more about them. It says, now they're dwelling in Jerusalem, starting in verse 5. Now dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Then you skip to verse 9 and 11. I'm not going to read all of that again. Um, you see a very specific naming of where they're from. But you also see something very specific here. At the end of verse 10, it says, and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Soterians and Arbenians. All right, the reason why that's important is because you have two types of people present here, okay? And they're all Jews, but you have people that were Jewish in background, Jewish in history, Jewish in uh, birth, but you also have Jewish converts here. And they're from all over the world, most likely due to dispersion, that the Jews would have had been uh, put through. Um, they were in all nations, as it says here, meaning they would have been spread out throughout the entire world. Um, I'm not sure um, if there's anything to merit here. Um, I, I thought of this this morning, and 
so I have not had time to study it, but I do feel like there could be a connection here. But in James chapter 1, verse 1, James chapter 1, verse 1, what we see going on is that James writes, he says, James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in dispersions, greetings. And James is one of the very first books written in the New Testament. So possibly the twelve that he is writing to could be individuals that were converted on this day of Pentecost. I'm not sure. I'm going to look into it. But I, I really wanted to reference this verse so we could understand a little bit better why there's Jews all over the place. Because too often when we think of the Jews, we think of them only being in the Jerusalem area. But due to the, the past that they had, they had been dispersed all throughout. Why? Because they were in captivity to some extent or another. But many of them have traveled back to Jerusalem. And as they traveled back to Jerusalem, they're traveling back for these Passover and the, the week of the, the Feast of the Week. So they're traveling back for these religious festivals. Both those Jewish in background and Jewish in conversion are present in this. But let's look at how they respond in verses 6 through 8. It says, And at the sound, the multitude came close, 6 through 8. It says, And the sound of the multitudes came together, and they were bewildered. Because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of them in his own native language? We've already handled the language aspect of that. But let's look at the response of the people. They were amazed and they were astonished. Why? Because something had happened. They're confused by it, but they're amazed by it. They, they were amazed by what was going on. And what was going on was this miraculous work of life, the work of God in the life of these individuals so that these other individuals could understand the gospel. They hear of this. They hear of this moment where these Galileans are speaking and teaching and they're speaking and teaching in languages that is different than theirs. So they're surprised that these uneducated men are speaking in languages that they had not known. So they go and they listen. Unfortunately, we're going to stop at the end of verse 13 and not see what Peter says to them until next week. But we do see in their response that there was two responses. And I would argue that when we share the gospel with people, it is the same two responses today as it was then maybe worded slightly different with the same responses. Verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Some were just generally curious. Curious of what was being said, what it meant. Peter's going to get into that as we look at it next week. But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. New wine simply means the good stuff. The wine that's newer, that tastes better, that's more sweet. And the reason why they're saying this is because they're accusing the disciples of being drunk. Peter's response, as we will look at next week, he says, that's not possible because it's only the ninth hour, meaning that it's too too early to be drunk. I don't know how that's an argument, but it was one, right? We'll look at that next week. They're amazed here, though. Some respond a good way, and some respond a very negative way. Some respond with genuine curiosity, 
And as we see at the end of chapter 2, there's some that are going to devote themselves to Christ, believe upon Jesus, be baptized, and become part of the church. <coughs> and certainly there's some that do not. It's really no different than today's world. When we proclaim the gospel in the power of the Spirit of God, we proclaim the, the good news through the Word of God, because we know that's the power to save. There's some that will be curious and they will be eager. They may even allow you to answer a lot of questions for them. Some may even believe and trust in Jesus after those encounters. But there'll be simply some that just mock. And you've got to be crazy to believe that. I may not say that you're drunk with the new wine, but certainly they're going to say that you're crazy. What I want us to point out here very briefly as we kind of come to an end, that after this happens in verse 14, I'm just going to read a very small portion. But Peter, standing with the 11, 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. He didn't allow the mockery or the doubt to stop him. Why? Well, what we've learned about Peter, even though he stood up boldly previously in chapter 1, if we've learned anything about Peter is that this boldness most likely did not come from within, but from the Spirit of God. So my encouragement to us is no, the Spirit will not fall on us in moments of need like a rushing wind or tongues of fire no, we may not be able to ever speak in a language that's not all. It's just miraculously. Who knows? You might be able to. God may do something that only he's going to do in your life that we don't know about yet. But what we can say with all certainty is that you're called to something greater. And you're called to be proclaimers of the word of God, the good news of the gospel. And we have the spirit of God that dwells in us that will empower us to do so. That you're called to live a life of perfection, meaning that you're called to pursue that of Christ. And certainly you're going to fail in that, but the reality is you have the Spirit of God, if you believe in Jesus in you, that's going to empower you to be more like the Son of God by turning away from the sin in your life. There's a lot of application you could take and run with this, but very simply what I want us to see is though it looks different, though it responded differently, though it's just different altogether... The Spirit of God lives in those who have trusted in Jesus. So we don't have to lean into ourselves so much, but rather lean into the Spirit of God working in us and the finished work of Christ on the cross and rest in Him. So my prayer this evening, as Nick comes, my prayer as we prepare to leave and go throughout this next week, it's very, very simple. It's very simple. That we as individuals would pray that God would use his spirit to empower us to do and to accomplish what he would like to do in our lives. Or you can even pray a much simpler prayer is that the spirit of God would reveal to you the way in which you can proclaim the gospel this week to those around you. And then in those moments, simply trust in the Spirit of God to empower you to do so. Be prepared. Know the gospel. 
articulate it in the window, in the mirror at your house if you got to. But pray that God would open those doors for you and trust the Spirit of God when those doors are open. And it may not happen this week, but I can say with all certainty, if you pray for an encounter to share the gospel with somebody that does not know Jesus, if that's a deep, felt prayer that you have, those moments will certainly arise. So pray for God's Spirit to lead and guide you in those moments. Lean into the finished work of Christ and rest in Him. Let's pray.